Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. It's your host, Joe. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Pickett's Charge. Finally getting to the infamous end to the Battle of Gettysburg, which I've been teasing for the last few episodes. Also, apologies for the delay in this episode coming out. I have been working on this episode for a long time, wanted to get it right, and I ended up breaking it up into two episodes, which they're they're coming out at the same time, so don't worry. But it just, you know, I just <laughs> kept writing and kept writing and kept writing, and then I realized, oh, wow, I have 60 pages here. I should probably split this up into two parts. Also, during the the process of working on this episode, I got sick with COVID, which was not fun. Do not recommend anyone else get it if you can. Uh, But in addition to me being sick, my whole family got sick, and that was not fun. But I'm back to feeling good, feeling great. And of course, all the usual, like the podcast on Facebook, which I'll link to in the episode description. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use, and please rate it five stars if this is an option for you. And without further ado, let's start the show. It's all now, you see. Yesterday won't be over until tomorrow, and tomorrow began 10,000 years ago. For every southern boy 14 years old, not once, but whenever he wants it, there is an instant when it is still not yet 2 o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. Brigades are in position behind the rail fence, and the guns are laid and ready in the woods, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out, and picking himself with his long oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand, probably, and his sword in the other, looking up at the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word. And it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even begun yet. It not only hasn't begun yet, but there is still time for it not to begin, against that position and those circumstances which made more men than Garnett and Kemper and Armistead and Wilcox look grave. Yet it's going to begin. We all know that. We have come too far with too much at stake, and that moment doesn't need even a 14-year-old boy to think this time. Maybe this time, with all this much to lose, then all this much to gain. Pennsylvania, Maryland, the world... The Golden Dome of Washington itself to crown with desperate and unbelievable victory. The desperate gamble. The cast made two years ago. Or to anyone who has ever sailed a skiff under a quilt sail. The moment in 1492 when somebody thought, this is it. The absolute edge of no return. To turn back now and make home or sail irrevocably on and either find land or plunge over the world's roaring rim. This quote is from William Faulkner's 1948 novel, Intruder in the Dust. It's a passage that has stuck with me for many years and is well known to most Civil War enthusiasts. It says a lot about Southern culture in the postbellum years, and how this one particular moment on a particular day in a particular small town in Pennsylvania has captured the imaginations of thousands, if not millions of people ever since. But it also deals with the idea of inevitability in history. When we look back at the past, we're doing so with the lens of hindsight, We know much about what has already happened, and so we can play out the afternoon of July 3rd, 1863 over and over again. What went wrong? What went right? What if Insert General had done this differently? The historian George Stewart, in his analysis of the Third Day's Battle, wrote of this phenomenon, quote, These attempts at explanation did much to develop a legend of the charge, and this legend has had a great influence upon what has come to be considered fact. 
Implicit in these explanations was the idea that a different result would have been assured if the writer's ideas had been followed. From those who had been at Gettysburg, this technique passed on to the historians. Unquote. I will try not to linger too much on alternatives or what-if questions here. Instead, my goal is to discuss what happened and analyze why it did. Going back to the Faulkner quote, let us act as if it is still that afternoon of July 3rd, 1863. History is not inevitable. As Karl Marx wrote in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, quote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under the circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, unquote. Pickett's charge was not inevitable. It was the result of individual actors making decisions based on the knowledge they had at that moment and the circumstances that they were in. And thus, the events unfolded as such. As discussed in episode 14, General Robert E. Lee and General James Longstreet met early on the morning of Friday, July 3rd, and sharply disagreed about how to proceed. Ultimately, Longstreet deferred to Lee. He was given tactical control over an assault aimed at roughly the center of the Union Army's line, and so Longstreet went about planning the attack. This likely went on for most of the morning, from around 5 until 10 a.m., Several Confederate soldiers and officers recalled seeing the high command of the army at times riding along the lines, stopping every once in a while to make observations. From reading these various accounts, you get the picture that quite a bit of effort went into the planning stage. But just exactly how the leaders of the army felt alternated between extreme confidence and pessimism. General George Pickett's division was the only fresh one left in the army. Alone, they would not be enough to drive the Yankees off the heights of Cemetery Ridge, to bolster the assaulting column, Lee ultimately drew upon General A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps. Hill's troops had opened the fight on the 1st, and had also participated in the failed assault against Cemetery Ridge on the 2nd. Oddly, little consideration for the strength of the 3rd Corps troops was given in the selection process. Six brigades from two of Hill's divisions were chosen to join Longstreet's assault column. All of General Henry Heath's division, and two brigades from General Dorsey Pender's division. Heath's four brigades had attacked Buford's Federal Cavalry Division and the lead elements of Reynolds' 1st Corps two days prior. Their performance was mixed at best, and three of the four brigades had sustained heavy casualties in the process. Additionally, several high-ranking officers were wounded or captured in the fighting, including Heath, who received a bullet wound to the head. Though the bullet failed to penetrate his skull, he probably suffered from some sort of head trauma and, to use an NFL term, was still in the concussion protocol. General James Archer, who commanded the 1st Brigade to become engaged in battle on July 1st, was captured near the railroad cut. Command of his brigade passed down to Colonel Burkett D. Fry, commander of the 13th Alabama Infantry. Fry, a native of Kanawha County, Virginia, now West Virginia, had turned 41 just a week prior to the battle. He'd attended both the Virginia Military Institute and the U.S. Military Academy, but ultimately flunked out of the latter. But Fry was a real hustler. He went on to study law, because of course he did. That's what every regimental commander at Gettysburg had done before the war. Despite his failure to graduate from West Point, he became a volunteer officer in the Mexican War, and then afterward migrated to California during the gold rush of 1849. Fry also participated in William Walker's filibustering expedition to Nicaragua in the 1850s, I briefly talked about Walker a few episodes back because a fellow filibusterer, Colonel Thomas Smith, commanded a brigade that was less than a mile to the east of Fry's position on July 3rd. 
Fry rose to the rank of general in Walker's mercenary army, which was ultimately defeated by a coalition of Central American armies. Fry returned to California before moving to Alabama in 1859, where he was involved in the cotton business. He was named commander of the 13th Alabama Infantry in 1861 and led the regiment through every major campaign for the peninsula to Chancellorsville, during which he was wounded three times. Command of Heath's division was given to General J. Johnston Pettigrew, who commanded the largest brigade of the division. I won't go that much into detail about Pettigrew's background since I've already done so previously in this series, but Pettigrew was an odd choice at face value considering that he'd only led troops in a major battle once before July 1st, 1863. He commanded a brigade at the Battle of Seven Pines the year before, where he was so severely wounded that he was presumed to be dead. However, he was captured by Union troops, survived the wounds, and returned to Virginia two months later following a prisoner exchange. Pettigrew recovered quickly, but was kept on the sidelines of the war from the fall of 1862 up until the Gettysburg Campaign, during which time he'd led a brigade in the defenses of Richmond and in northeastern North Carolina. His brigade was added to Lee's army specifically to bolster its numbers for the planned invasion. Again, Pettigrew probably wouldn't have been the first choice to replace Heath, but within the division itself, there was no suitable alternative. He outranked the other three candidates, all of whom had their own deficiencies. General Joseph R. Davis, the nephew of the president, was an incompetent nepotism hire. Colonel John M. Brockenborough was a poor brigade commander, and the previously mentioned Burkett D. Fry had no previous experience above the regimental level. Pettigrew would have to suffice. The other two brigades were detached from the division of the mortally wounded General William Dorsey Pender. After Pender's wounding on the evening of the 2nd, command of his division was handed to General James Lane. But on the morning of the 3rd, General Lee would make a late-game substitution. Major General Isaac Trimble was chosen to replace Lane as commander of Pender's division. Trimble, you might recall, was a former Maryland-based railroad engineer and executive who had led a brigade in Stonewall Jackson's wing of the army until he received a severe bullet wound in the leg at the Second Battle of Bull Run. During his lengthy recovery, he was promoted to Major General and promised command of Jackson's old division, but his poor health kept him on the sideline for the first half of 1863. That leadership role ultimately was given to Allegheny Johnson, so Trimble was left without a command. Nevertheless, he followed the army in its march northward in June, hoping that his expertise in the Maryland area and its railroads would prove useful, but his presence irked most of those he spent time with. Eventually, he ended up as a kind of unofficial member of Dick Yule's staff. The two would butt heads throughout Pennsylvania, which culminated in a dispute over Yule's inactivity at the end of the first day's fight. With two of Hill's division commanders out, at least for the time being, Trimble inquired to Lee about serving as a replacement. Why Lee ultimately chose to replace Lane with Trimble remains a mystery. Trimble was higher in rank than Lane and had maybe a little more experience as a brigade commander, but he'd never actually led a division in the field. Additionally, he lacked the familiarity with the troops that he was about to lead into battle. So just three hours before the Confederate assault began, Trimble relieved Lane, and was quickly filled in on the details of the attack, and addressed the men of his demi-division. The two brigades chosen to participate in the assault were led by the aforementioned General Lane, as well as General Alfred Scales. Scales would not be available to lead his troops because he too had been wounded on the first day when a shell fragment struck his leg on Seminary Ridge. Command of the brigade would fall to Colonel William Lee Joshua Lawrence. Lawrence was just 26 years old and hailed from Mooresville, North Carolina. Prior to the war, he had attended Davidson College and worked as a teacher until the outbreak of the war. 
He was elected a lieutenant in Company D of the 34th North Carolina in September 1861, and by December of the following year, he was promoted to colonel in command of the regiment. Lawrence had also been wounded in the fighting on July 1st, but apparently not as severely as Scales. The decision-making that went into which units would join Pickett's division seemed mostly to be based on availability as opposed to strength. Pettigrew's division had been chewed up pretty bad on July 1st, particularly Archer's, Davis's, and his own brigade. Lane's brigade had been involved in the battle west of town, but had sustained relatively few casualties. Scales' brigade, on the other hand, lost nearly 500 men, mostly wounded or killed, which would account for nearly 40% of the brigade's total strength. Under normal circumstances, Heath's division and Scales' brigade would not have been used for further offensive operations. Furthermore, what's strange is that within Hill's Corps, there were two brigades which had not seen any combat in the battle at all, Thomas's and Mahone's brigades. Thomas, also part of Pender's division, had arrived late on July 1st and was held in reserve. Mahone, as discussed in episode 12, was supposed to have joined the fight the previous day. His brigade was on the far left of Anderson's division and should have followed Posey's brigade in the assault against Cemetery Ridge, but inexplicably never did. Now, I don't believe that merely the selection of these two brigades would have given the Confederates a significant advantage or even greatly improved their chances of success, but again we see a breakdown in communication in the high command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Why did General Hill not offer recommendations to Lee and Longstreet for which units would have been best suited for the task at hand? In theory, he should have the best knowledge of the strength and reliability for the brigades in his corps. Hill did participate in some of the planning for the assault as he was seen riding with Lee and Longstreet and did converse with the latter general about the disposition of his troops and how they should advance. After they parted ways in the morning, they would not see each other again until after the charge. Both Hill and Longstreet had had a tempestuous relationship during the war, and though they were able to quash their beef enough to work together, there were certainly communication issues on July 3rd. Longstreet seemed to think that Hill would exercise leadership over the troops in his corps during the attack, whereas Hill believed Longstreet would have direct tactical control over all three divisions involved. Was Longstreet trying to shift responsibility onto Hill, or was Hill pouting because he was put in a subordinate role? It's not entirely clear, but based on Hill's poor performance on July 1st and 2nd, I think I had to defer to Longstreet here. I think Little Powell once again failed to live up to the new responsibilities put upon him. Besides the main assault column, additional brigades were to act as support troops. Their exact role in the attack is a bit muddled, with some historians and even a few participants claiming that they were to act as a second wave that would exploit any breakthrough that was made by the main battle line. But in reality, it seemed more likely that the role of these supports was less of a second wave and more of a shield to protect the flanks for the main thrust. These support troops would once again be drawn from the 3rd Corps, primarily the brigades of Dick Anderson's division, which had participated in the assault on Cemetery Ridge on the 2nd. Since only two of the brigades made any significant advance with the bulk of the assault column, I'll mention them. They were Wilcox's and Lang's brigades. Neither officer was very confident in the success of the attack, nor would their respective troops make much of a difference. Their assault on the 2nd had failed, and conditions on the 3rd seemed more unfavorable for the Confederates. Plus, both brigades had taken heavy casualties the day before. Lack of water and food rations only made their status even worse. The rebel artillery began taking up positions over the course of the morning. Command of the guns was not given to the Army's artillery chief, General William Pendleton, who essentially had a ceremonial role in the Army's structure. Lee did not have much confidence in Pendleton's military abilities. He was a West Pointer, having graduated 5th in the class of 1830, a year behind Lee, 
But his army career was a short one, and most of his antebellum days were spent as an Episcopal priest. I talked about this in an earlier episode, but as a refresher, Lee had reorganized the army's artillery back in January of 1863, stripping Pendleton of any artillery reserve and limiting his duties. Artillery in the Army of Northern Virginia was then organized into battalions, which usually consisted of four batteries of varying size and gun type. Each division was assigned a battalion, and each corps was assigned two reserve battalions. In total, that would mean that each corps had a total of five artillery battalions, 15 in total for the Army. The man chosen to command the 1st Corps artillery was the young Colonel Edward Porter Alexander. He was picked over Colonel James Walton, the commander of the 1st Corps Artillery Reserve, which shows just how much confidence Longstreet had in Alexander. He'd spent the morning placing guns of his battalion around the Peach Orchard and had a short meeting with General Pendleton, who approved of his arrangements. Around 8 a.m., he rode to meet with Longstreet, who at the time was still conversing with Lee. Shortly after, Longstreet informed Alexander of the plan for the day, and what his role would be. He would command approximately 75 of the 1st Corps guns in the pre-attack cannonade, in conjunction with around 60 guns from the 3rd Corps. In addition to those 135 guns, somewhere between 15 and 35 more artillery pieces, either on the extreme left or right flank, would participate in the bombardment. In total, it was at least 150 guns, perhaps as many as 170. The movement of the Confederate artillery did not go unnoticed by Union observers. In a letter to Porter Alexander after the war, Union artillery chief Henry Hunt told him, Between 10 and 11 a.m., everything looking favorable at Culp's Hill, I crossed over to Cemetery Ridge to see what might be going on at other points. Here, a magnificent display greeted my eyes. Our whole front, for two miles, was covered by batteries, already in line or going into position. They stretched, apparently in one unbroken mass, from opposite the town to the peach orchard, which bounded the view to the left, the ridges of which were planted thick with cannon. Never before had such a sight been witnessed on this continent, and rarely if ever abroad. What did it mean? Hunt correctly surmised that this concentration of firepower was meant to precede an infantry attack. He would go on to say, quote, I instructed the chiefs of artillery and battery commanders to withhold their fire for 15 or 20 minutes after the cannonade commenced, then to concentrate their fire with all possible accuracy on those batteries which were most destructive to us, but slowly, so that when the enemy's ammunition was exhausted, we should have sufficient left to meet the assault, After the war, Alexander would write, quote, My orders were as follows. First, to give the enemy the most effective cannonade possible. It was not meant simply to make a noise, but to try and cripple him, to tear him limbless, as it were, if possible, drive off the enemy or greatly demoralize him. When the artillery had accomplished that, the infantry column of attack was to charge, and then further, I was to advance such artillery as you can use in aiding the attack, unquote. Later, he would add that Longstreet entrusted him to, quote, determine the proper moment to give the signal to picket to advance, unquote. In accordance with Alexander's instructions from Longstreet to advance such artillery as you can use in aiding the attack, he managed to procure additional guns for this purpose. He wrote in his post-war memoirs, quote, As I rode with General Pendleton and talked over matters, he told me that Colonel R.L. Walker, A.P. Hill's chief of artillery, had nine 12-pounder howitzers, for which he had no special use as their range was too short. General Pendleton asked me if I could make use of them. I jumped at the idea and thanked him and said, yes, I had the very place for them, and I rode on with him immediately and then had them turned over to me under the command of a Major Richardson, 
This was a tactical move rarely employed in the Civil War, especially on the scale of the attack that was about to be made that afternoon. Alexander feared limbering up the artillery that was going to be on the firing line. In case the assault did fail and they were counterattacked, those guns would be at risk of capture. So these extra nine howitzers would be kept in reserve until the infantry advance was to be made. His initial plan was to deploy them behind the infantry, but after thinking it over, he changed his mind for a specific reason. Quote, First, it must be borne in mind that our Confederate artillery could only sparingly, and in great emergency, be allowed to fire over the heads of our infantry. We were always liable to premature explosions of shell and shrapnel, and our infantry knew it by sad experience, and I have known of their threatening to fire back at our guns if we opened over their heads. Of course, solid shot could be safely so used, but that is the least effective ammunition, and the infantry would not know the difference, and would be demoralized and angry all the same." Unquote. This type of use of artillery was not really seen much in the Civil War, mostly for the fact that it took a long time for guns to limber up and move into different positions. By the time they had unlimbered and were ready to fire, they would probably come under the fire of enemy artillery or musket fire, depending on how close they were. Nevertheless, Lee and Longstreet found this to be an integral part of the attack plan. Longstreet had entrusted a lot of responsibilities on Alexander, but the young artillerist relished the challenge. During the late morning preparations, a minor battle broke out between Union and Confederate skirmishers for the Bliss Farm, which had been the site of sporadic fighting since the 2nd. I described this back in episode 12, how skirmishers from Posey's Mississippi Brigade dueled with the Federal skirmishers of Willard's and Smith's brigades until the Mississippians finally won out. The issue was far from finished. The presence of the farm allowed Confederate occupants to use it as a sniper nest from which to fire upon infantry and artillery positions on the ridge. General Alexander Hayes, commander of the 3rd Division of the 2nd Corps, still hoped to gain possession of the farm, but decided that if they couldn't hold it, they would burn the barn and the other farm buildings to deprive the Confederates of its use. Around 10 a.m., eight companies of the 14th Connecticut Infantry charged the farm. Captain Samuel Moore led four companies in an attack on the barn, which was taken after a short struggle. Confederate sharpshooters retreated to the farmhouse and the orchard. Major Theodore Ellis, commander of the 14th Connecticut, determined to drive them out of the farmhouse and to prevent a counterattack. Around this time, the rebel artillery from the 3rd Corps opened up on the Yankees, which annoyed Alexander a great deal. He wrote in his memoirs, quote, At last, at least a hundred guns on the two sides got into a duel which lasted nearly a half hour, and then finally died out. I would not let one of my guns fire a shot. For myself, I think it was a mistake to use that much ammunition prematurely if it could have been avoided, unquote. The Confederate guns did convince Federal officers that the Bliss Farm could not be held. Some of the Connecticut soldiers abandoned the farmhouse and sought refuge in the barn or other outbuildings in the property. Around 11 a.m., Captain James Postles, an officer of General Hayes' staff, came riding through a hail of shot and shell and told Major Ellis, quote, Colonel Smith orders you to burn the house and barn and retire, unquote. Soldiers of the 14th gathered up the dead and wounded, in addition to some chickens that Ellis gave them permission to steal and set fire to the farmhouse and barn. Within 15 minutes, the buildings were engulfed in flames and black smoke. Not long after, they were completely destroyed. William Bliss, his wife, and two of his daughters returned after the battle to find the farm in ruins. He sought restitution in the sum of $1,256.08 from the federal government for the destruction of his personal property, but never received any money. He eventually sold the farm to Nicholas Cadori and moved to Sinclairville, New York, though he was apparently not bitter about the situation. Bliss was alleged to have said of his farm, quote, Let it go. 
If I had another 20 farms, I would have given them all for such a victory, unquote. He died in 1888. His daughter Frances continued to petition the government for the money she felt they were owed and came close, but the Supreme Court ruled that the government would not pay people whose property were destroyed as a result of combat. She died in 1921. The troops selected for the attack were spread out in a line about a mile in length, but it's important to note that this was not a straight or uninterrupted line. To understand how the attack unfolded, it's important to understand how the troops were arrayed and how the terrain affected the assault. On the left front was the line of Pettigrew's division. His four brigades were put into a single line of battle, with Brockenbrough on the far left, then Davis, then Pettigrew's brigade, and finally Fry's brigade. Pettigrew's brigade was now commanded by Colonel James K. Marshall, a 24-year-old VMI graduate of 1860. He hailed from an aristocratic Virginia family in Fauquier County. His grandfather was John Marshall, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. His father, Edward C. Marshall, was a former member of the Virginia House of Delegates, a wealthy slave-owning planter and railroad executive. James Marshall was a teacher in Edenton, North Carolina at the time of Virginia's secession. He became a captain in the 52nd North Carolina Infantry, which he was promoted to colonel of in the spring of 1862. Gettysburg was the first major campaign that he'd participated in. Behind Pettigrew's division was the Demi Division led by General Trimble. To the left was Lane's brigade, and on the right was Lawrence's, and they were aligned behind Pettigrew's right so that his right and center had troops in the rear, but his left wing was unsupported. Some historians have speculated that this was an oversight by Longstreet or Hill because it would mean that Pettigrew's left might be vulnerable to flanking fire, but it's possible, and I believe likely, that the decision was a deliberate one meant to put the mass of Confederate troops closer to the center. This would give their punch more weight when it struck the Union line. To their right was a gap of about 400 yards before we reached Pickett's left flank. Pickett's division was arranged so that there were two brigades in front and one in the rear. Garnett was on the left front and Kemper the right. Behind Garnett's brigade was Armistead, which is further evidence that Longstreet wanted more troops in the center of the battle line. In addition to the gap between Longstreet's and Hill's troops, there was also the issue that they were starting in different positions and had different distances to traverse, but in general they had about three quarters of a mile to reach the main Union line on Cemetery Ridge. As always, I would advise to check out the Excuse Me History Facebook page for maps and supplemental information to help you follow along with the action. We don't know for certain what was the guiding point for the attack. The prevailing belief was that the Confederate infantry was aiming for a small copse of trees on Cemetery Ridge. Copse is a peculiar word, rather archaic. Even in the 19th century, it was not that common of a term. It simply means a small group of trees, like a grove or thicket. This small group of trees received its infamous name from John Batchelder, one of the battlefield's early and arguably most important historians. Batchelder spent the post-war years interviewing and corresponding with veterans of the battle. In 1869, he toured the battlefield with Walter Harrison, a Confederate staff officer who served as Pickett's inspector general during the battle. While walking along Cemetery Ridge, Harrison pointed out a clump of trees located just south of the angle in the stone fence that runs along the ridge. Batchelder wrote that Harrison, quote, explained to me what an important feature that copse of trees was at the time of the battle and how it had been a landmark toward which Longstreet's assault of July 3, 1863 had been directed, unquote. Though the Confederates referred to the trees usually as a clump, Batchelder searched the dictionary for a fancier, more dignified word and landed on cops. Several historians have challenged this assertion and provided alternative theories for the target of Longstreet's assault. 
The first one was another clump of trees called Ziegler's Grove, which was a few hundred yards north of the cops, and was larger and might have been easier to see from the rebels' starting point. The second was Cemetery Hill. Evidence for this claim is usually derived from the fact that Confederate officers involved in the assault often did not differentiate between Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge. Instead of treating them as distinct geologic formations, they often referred to them both as Cemetery Hill. Porter Alexander admitted this in a letter to Henry Hunt after the war. In his memoirs, he wrote, quote, A clump of trees in the enemy's line was pointed out to me as the proposed point of our attack, which I was incorrectly told was the cemetery of the town, and about 9 a.m. I began to revise our line and post it for the cannonade, unquote. Another piece of evidence that came from Alexander that Cemetery Hill was not the target of the attack came from one of his primary criticisms. He felt that Cemetery Hill proper was the weakest point in the Federal line, because it was the only spot that the Confederates could create an effective crossfire with their artillery. The center of the attack was considered to be Fry's Brigade, meaning that the chorus of Fry's soldiers would guide the rest of the battle line toward their intended target. All brigades to his left would dress their ranks to the right, and Pickett's division would do the inverse. This was not much of an issue for the brigades of Pettigrew's division, but for Pickett's three brigades, it would mean that they would have to close that 400-yard gap between them. Though it's been suggested in some Civil War literature that this was a huge oversight by Lee and Longstreet, evidence suggests that they were aware of the gap, and steps were taken to correct this issue once the assault was underway. The reason for the gap was mostly due to the nature of the terrain. Lieutenant Lewis Young of Pettigrew's staff recalled that they were instructed to, quote, place the division under the nearest cover to the left of Pickett's division, with which it would advance in line, unquote. The nearest cover just so happened to be in a wooded area just behind the crest of Seminary Ridge, which was about 400 yards to the north of where the Virginians deployed on the morning of the 3rd. Longstreet gave Pickett the leeway to determine how the two wings of the assault column would be joined during the battle. Pickett, Dick Garnett, and Burkett Fry met sometime during the course of the morning, likely to discuss this. The mood within the Army of Northern Virginia varied greatly from unit to unit and man to man, though generally speaking the soldiers of Pickett's division seemed more confident than those of Hill's Corps, all of whom had seen action on the first or second day of battle. Longstreet was incredibly pessimistic about their chances of success. He already expressed his displeasure to Lee, who disregarded his top lieutenant's concerns. George Pickett, however, was almost universally described as being in a positive mood on the third. Colonel Fry wrote that during his meeting with Pickett that, quote, he appeared to be in excellent spirits, and after a cordial greeting and a pleasant reference to our having been together in work of that kind at Chapultepec, expressed great confidence in the ability of our troops to drive the enemy after they had been demoralized by our artillery, unquote. Another officer who conversed with a Cavalier-esque Virginian was Lieutenant Colonel George D. Gordon, an English-born former British Army officer who now commanded the 34th North Carolina Infantry in Lawrence's Brigade. Captain Robert A. Bright of Pickett's staff remembered being introduced by Pickett to the Englishman. Quote, This is Colonel Gordon, once opposed to me in the San Juan affair, but now on our side, unquote. Pickett was referring to the Pig War, the dispute between the British and Americans over the San Juan Islands that it described back in episode 14. After briefly reminiscing about their past encounter, Gordon told Pickett bluntly, quote, Pickett, my men are not going up there today, unquote. Rather shocked, the general replied, quote, But Gordon, they must go up. You must make them go up, unquote. The Englishman said back to him, quote, You know, Pickett, I will go as far with you as any other man, if only for old acquaintance sake. 
but my men have until lately been down at the seashore, only under the fire of heavy guns from ships. But for the last day or two they have lost heavily under infantry fire, and are very sore, and they will not go up today." Unquote. General Lewis Armistead was apparently upset that his brigade was placed in the second line of Pickett's division. He asked Major Walter Harrison if Pickett wanted him to advance to the left of Garnett's brigade to connect with Pettigrew's division. Harrison sought out Pickett but could not find him, so instead asked General Longstreet, who was nearby. Longstreet was annoyed by the question, likely because of his unhappiness with the overall situation, and now he was being asked a minute question when he probably had more important things to attend to. He initially told Harrison rather sharply, quote, General Pickett will attend to that, sir, unquote, but after calming down, told the staff officer, quote, Never mind, Colonel, you can tell General Armstead to remain where he is for the present, and he can make up the distance when the advance is made, unquote. While riding back to inform the brigadier, Harrison recalled that it, quote, was the means of my obtaining a first and comprehensive view of the position of the enemy, and truly, it was no cheering prospect, unquote. Colonel Joseph Mayo, commander of the 3rd Virginia Infantry of Kemper's Brigade, recalled the feelings of his men and a fellow Confederate officer on July 3rd, quote, Soon after we got into position, some 200 yards in the rear of the batteries on Seminary Ridge, General Lee passed in front of us, coming from the right, and a little while afterwards every man in the ranks was made to know exactly what was the work which had been cut out for us. I remember perfectly well General Kemper's earnest injunction to me to be sure that the 3rd Virginia was told that the commanding general had assigned our division the post of honor that day. He was a Virginian, so were they. Then the arms were stacked and the men allowed to rest at will, but one thing was especially noticeable. From being unusually merry and hilarious, they on a sudden had become as still and thoughtful as Quakers at a love feast. Walking up the line to where Colonel Patton was standing in front of the 7th, I said to him, this news has brought about an awful seriousness with our fellows, Taz. Yes, he replied. And well, they may be serious. If they really know what is in store for them, I have been up yonder where Deering is, and looked across at the Yankees. Then he told me a good joke he had on our dashing and debonair chief of artillery. He had ridden out on the skirmish line to get a closer observation of the enemy's position when a courier galloped up with a message from General Lee. Naturally, he supposed Mars Robert wished to ask him what he had seen of those people that was worth reporting, but he was woefully mistaken. This was all the general had to say. Major Deering, I do not approve of young officers needlessly exposing themselves. Your place is with your batteries, unquote. A couple things to note from this passage. The officer that Colonel Mayo spoke to was Colonel Waller Tazewell Patton, commander of the 7th Virginia Infantry of Kemper's Brigade. Patton's father, John M. Patton, had been a U.S. congressman and was an interim governor of Virginia. Taz, as Mayo called him, was a 28-year-old VMI graduate, professor, lawyer, and pre-war militia leader. His older brother, Colonel George Smith Patton, was a fellow Confederate regimental commander, though his 22nd Virginia was likely in West Virginia at the time. If his name sounds familiar, it's because he was the grandfather and namesake of the future World War II general, George S. Patton, which made Taz his great-uncle. The other officer that Patton mentioned in Mayo's recollection was Major James Deering. Deering was a 23-year-old Virginian and was enrolled at West Point at the time of the secession crisis. In fact, in April of 61, he was ranked first in the class and likely would have finished at the top of the class that graduated a year early in June of that year, but Deering was an avowed secessionist and left West Point in April to join Virginia forces shortly after the state left the Union. At Gettysburg, he commanded the artillery battalion of Pickett's division. The young artillerist had developed a reputation for recklessness going back to his days at West Point. 
On the 3rd, he had been riding his horse in front of his four batteries, reconnoitering Union artillery positions on Cemetery Ridge, which earned the rebuke from Lee, who thought he was needlessly putting himself into harm's way. Deering was lucky that the Federal batteries were quiet for the most part. In fact, Porter Alexander remarked that he felt the Federal artillery officers made a mistake in not being more aggressive, allowed the Confederate artillery to save their ammunition for the massive cannonade to come. Corporal Charles T. Lohr, the 1st Virginia, gathered the canteens of his comrades and went to a well near one of the Confederate batteries was posted. Some of the gunners pointed out the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge, after which the gravity of the situation sunk into Lohr. Upon his return to the regiment, he told his fellow soldiers that he, quote, would not give 25 cents for his life if the charge was made, unquote. Whether or not they'd actually seen the ground to the east, most Confederate soldiers seemed to have a pretty clear and sober view of what was going to happen. Lieutenant James F. Crocker of the 9th Virginia Armistead's Brigade remarked during the lead-up to the attack that, quote, In a group of soldiers, a number of whom did not survive that fatal day, I could not help expressing that it was to be another Malvern Hill, another costly day to Virginia and to Virginians, unquote. The Battle of Malvern Hill, the closing engagement of the Seven Days Battle of the previous summer, was widely considered to have been Lee's biggest blunder up until that point. Crocker had actually been wounded at that battle, yet he still expressed confidence in what they were about to do. Quote, While all fully saw and appreciated the cost of the fearful magnitude of the assault, yet all were firmly resolved, if possible, to pluck victory from the very jaws of death itself. Never were men more conscious of the difficulty imposed on them by duty, or more determinedly resolved to perform it with alacrity and cheerfulness, even to annihilation, than were the men of Pickett's division on that day. Unquote. Even knowing the gravity of the situation, the soldiers of Pickett's division did seem to believe that victory was possible, largely due to one factor, General Robert E. Lee. Private William H. H. Winton of the 11th Virginia recalled that after being told by his regimental officers what they were about to undertake, that there was a general consensus, quote, Well, it seems impossible, but if Uncle Bob says so, we will make the charge. There was not hesitation or uneasiness. I never saw the division so earnest on the eve of battle. They meant business. Unquote. Fewer accounts were left behind by the members of Pettigrew's and Trimble's divisions. This might be partially due to the fact that they'd already seen combat at Gettysburg and in recent battles, whereas Pickett's division had not been in a major fight for nearly nine months. It might also have something to do with the way each division's role in the battle was remembered. Nevertheless, you get similar sentiments from those accounts that do exist. Sergeant June Kimball, the 14th Tennessee, Fry's Brigade, also walked out to the artillery line to survey the scene, and what he saw did not encourage him. Quote, Realizing just what was before me, and the brave boys with me, and at once, one of the most serious moments in my life, I asked aloud the question, June Kimball, are you going to do your duty today? The audible answer was, I'll do it, so help me God. I turned and walked back to the line. How does it look, June? said Lieutenant Waters. I replied, boys, if we have to go, it will be hot for us, and we will have to do our best. When I responded to my own question as to doing my duty, a change of feeling immediately took possession of me. All dread even passed away, and from that moment to the close of that disastrous struggle, I retained my nerve, and my action was as calm and deliberate as if upon dress parade. It was different from all other experiences, many and various in my four years of unbroken service." Unquote. There seemed to be a high degree of pessimism amongst Wilcox and Lang's brigades, the support troops posted to the right of Pickett's division. Captain George Clark of the 11th Alabama, Wilcox's brigade, remembered the situation in the late morning. Quote, the men began to make themselves as comfortable as practicable, 
When the brigade commander, unaccompanied by his staff, went forward on foot to the crest of the ridge and was seen to be surveying the enemy's position opposite on Cemetery Ridge through his field glass. After a short while, he returned, and forming the brigade in line, he moved it forward until it reached a space of about 40 yards behind the artillery which was being planted near the crest. When this was done, there were ominous shakes of the head among the boys as to the wisdom of such a move, and expressions were heard to the effect that Old Billy Fixin, the brigadier's nickname, was not to be satisfied with having lost one half of his brigade the day before, but was determined to sacrifice the whole caboodle today." Unquote. Unbeknownst to Clark, Wilcox was just as gloomy about their prospects of success. He'd met with several of Pickett's brigadiers earlier and expressed this feeling to General Garnett. Lang said after the war that he believed Pickett's attack was doomed, quote, As we were confident that what Anderson's division had failed to do on the 2nd, Pickett's could not do 24 hours later when the enemy had reinforced his line, unquote. During the lull before the cannonade, he conversed with Wilcox, quote, I called upon General Wilcox and asked what he intended to do if he were ordered to assault after Pickett's division was repulsed, as we both felt confident it would be. He replied, in substance, that he would not again lead his men into such a death trap, but said I, suppose your orders are imperative and admit no discretion in the matter. Then, said he, I will do so under protest. Unquote. I do want to describe the terrain a bit. The various units of the assault would have slightly different distances to march across to reach their targets, but generally speaking, they would be required to advance across a mostly open field for three quarters of a mile. I say mostly open because the valley between Seminary and Cemetery Ridge was spotted with farms and other man-made features. The farms in the valley included those owned by the Bliss, Bryan, Kadori, Rogers, and Klingle families. The usual farmhouses, barns, crop fields, orchards, and property-marking boundaries would create obstacles for the advancing force, but they could also potentially be used as shelter. Another important feature in their path was the thoroughfare that I've mentioned numerous times, Emmitsburg Road. The fence that bordered either side of the pike comes up a lot in post-battle accounts, both Confederate and Union. The fences were less intact the further away from town you got because during the fighting of July 2nd, Union and Confederate forces tore down many of the rails. As an obstacle, it would be much more of a hindrance for the troops of Hill's Corps than of Longstreet's. As far as natural features are concerned, the Confederates would descend down the eastern slope of Seminary Ridge into the valley. Valley is a rather generous term because the ground between the two ridges wasn't that much lower than the peaks, though it varied depending on the particular point. The slope of either ridge was not particularly steep, at least not enough that it would make it difficult for the attacker or give that much of an advantage to the defender. The terrain between the ridges was also not completely flat. A Tennessean of Fry's brigade would recall, quote, The ground over which we were marching was a little undulating, but nowhere sufficiently abrupt to afford the slightest shelter, unquote. This, however, would also vary depending on the particular brigade or regiment. At various points in the three-quarters of a mile distance, there were shallow swales or depressions that would briefly take the soldiers out of view. For the Army of the Potomac, the morning of July 3rd had at times been relatively quiet, but it was more exciting than perhaps some folks realized. Things kicked off with a hot start around 4 that morning when Union batteries opened fire on Confederate positions on Lower Culp's Hill, followed by the Rebel attack there. General George Meade was up when the attack began, having only gotten a few hours of sleep. 
While Johnson's attack on the 12th Corps was still ongoing, he ordered as many reserve units as he could to support his right wing. Whitelaw Reed, an Ohio war correspondent who wrote under the pseudonym Agate, was at the Leicester House on the morning of the 3rd. He described the scene, quote, Headquarters presented a busy scene. Meade was receiving reports in the little house, coming occasionally to the door to address a hasty inquiry to someone in a group of staff officers under the tree. Quick and nervous in his movements, but calm and, as it seemed to me, lit up with the glow of the occasion, he looked more the general, less the student, unquote. Reed would go on to say, quote, Orderlies and aides were momentarily dashing up with reports and off with orders. The signal officers were bringing in the reports telegraphed by the signal flags from different crests that overlooked the fight. The rest of the staff stood ready for any duty, and outside the little garden fence, a great group of horses stood hitched. Reports coming back to Meade indicated a general success on the right flank. Unquote. Another account of Meade on Friday morning came from Lieutenant Frank Haskell, one of General John Gibbon's staff officers. Haskell recalled seeing Meade during his inspection of the Second Corps with General Winfield Scott Hancock that morning. Quote, he was early on horseback that morning and rode along the whole line, looking to it with himself and with glass in hand sweeping the woods and fields in the direction of the enemy to see if aught of him could be discovered. His manner was calm and serious, but earnest. Unquote. The Army commander sent off a dispatch to 6th Corps commander General John Sedgwick at 8 a.m., telling him to mass his troops in reserve behind the center of the Army's defensive line, which would allow them to easily reinforce any sector that was threatened. He also sent out orders to move Brigadier General Joseph Bartlett's brigade of the 6th Corps to the Army's left so that it could be used to counterattack the Confederate right flank if they launched an assault on the Union center. As the battle at Culpsville was winding down, he sent out orders to move reserve troops on the Union right to its center. General John C. Robinson's division of the 1st Corps was brought up to support the 2nd Corps line on Cemetery Ridge. Before I go on, I want to describe the Union position, the units and leaders involved in the defense of Pickett's Charge. I'll start from the north and work our way south. Hancock's 2nd Corps would make up the bulk of the defense of Cemetery Ridge. His three divisions had been involved in the fighting the day before in various degrees. His first division, led by General John Caldwell, had been sent to support Sickles' faltering Third Corps in the Wheatfield, and after initially driving back the Confederates, were repulsed with heavy casualties. His other two divisions, those led by Gibbon and Hayes, were involved in the defense of Cemetery Ridge against the attack of Barksdale, Wilcox, Langs, and Wright's brigades. On the far right of Hancock's line was the Third Division, led by Brigadier General Alexander Hayes. Hayes was nearly 44, he'd celebrate his birthday less than a week after the battle, and he was a native of Franklin, Pennsylvania. His father Samuel Hayes, who was an Irish immigrant, had served in the Pennsylvania Senate, had one term as a congressional representative, and was a militia general. Alexander attended Allegheny College, but left after he received an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy before his senior year. While at West Point, he developed a close relationship with Ulysses Grant, who was a class ahead of him. He graduated 20th out of 25 in the class of 1844. One of his fellow classmates was none other than his future corps commander, Winfield Hancock. He served in the 8th U.S. Infantry Regiment during the Mexican War and was wounded in that conflict. Following the war, he resigned from the Army and worked in various jobs. Iron manufacturing, gold mining, railroad engineering, and then finally settling on being a civil engineer for the city of Pittsburgh. He re-entered the Army at the outbreak of the Civil War and was named Colonel of the 63rd Pennsylvania Infantry, which he led during the Peninsula Campaign, Seven Days Battles, and Second Bull Run. 
Wounds in the latter two battles would force him to take a medical leave of absence, during which he was promoted to Brigadier General, and upon his return to command, a brigade in the defenses of Washington, D.C. until the late spring of 1863. He was later promoted to Division Command and returned to the Army of the Potomac for the Gettysburg Campaign. Hayes was generally loved by his soldiers and respected by most of his commanders, though he did have a reputation for being a bit reckless and hot-headed in battle. Captain Winfield Scott of the 126th New York, not to be confused with the aging former army commander, wrote of Hayes, quote, He was a princely soldier, brave as a lion, and was one of those dashing, reckless, enthusiastic generals that reminded you of one of the old cavaliers. He seemed happiest when in the thickest of the fight, unquote. His first brigade was the one involved the least in the fight on July 3rd. It was the Gibraltar Brigade, commanded by Colonel Samuel Carroll. I talked about Carroll and his brigade back in episode 13. They were sent to reinforce the 11th Corps the night before when Early's division attacked East Cemetery Hill. Only one of his regiments was detailed to stay behind on the 2nd, the 8th Ohio Infantry, led by Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer. The Ohioans had participated in the battle for Cemetery Ridge on Thursday, where it fought against Posey's Mississippi Brigade. After the fighting ceased, the bulk of the regiment took up a position just west of the Emmitsburg Road, with some of the regiment acting as skirmishers a little ways in advance. Skirmishing was not always a particularly deadly duty, but because the two skirmish lines were so close together, a hundred yards or less separated them, casualties were fairly high. The 8th Ohio arrived at Gettysburg with just 218 soldiers, and by noon of the 3rd they had sustained 52 casualties, leaving just 166 left. The fire was so hot that the infantrymen were almost always lying in a prone position in order to avoid catching a bullet. Confederate skirmishers had one advantage in this contest, their uniforms, which varied but generally were a brown or sandy color, and it gave them a kind of camouflage in the fields between the ridges. To combat this, Union skirmishers used a tactic called turning a jack, where a small group of soldiers, maybe three to five, would watch for puffs of smoke, indicating a shot had been fired, and then they would fire as a group. Lieutenant Thomas Francis Galway, a 17-year-old Irishman who commanded a company of the 8th Ohio, recorded in his diary the deadly nature of the fighting, quote, Our dead skirmishers lay so thick where they had been killed in the line that it was difficult for us to find a place to stretch ourselves, unquote. Galway would go on to say, quote, To be slain on the field of battle for one's country is glorious. To be wounded and left to die helpless and in pain where the bullets of friends and foe hiss through the air or strike with a wicked thud into the ground nearby, and to have the summer sun burning the already fevered body and adding to the horrible thirst, is pitiful in the extreme. Unquote. Because they'd been on the skirmish line so long, Lieutenant Colonel Sawyer sent a request to one of Colonel Carroll's staff officers that they be relieved by one of the other regiments in the brigade. But the events of the day would prevent this from happening. The rest of Carroll's brigade would remain on Cemetery Hill during the battle. Hayes' next brigade was commanded by Colonel Thomas Smith, an Irishman and former Walker filibusterer. It was troops from his brigade that were involved in the fight for the Bliss Farm on the 2nd and 3rd. As I talked about earlier, troops from the 14th Connecticut had burned down the farm buildings when it was realized they couldn't be held. Smith's brigade was positioned in the area of the Bryan Farm. The property was owned by Abraham Bryan, who was notable as one of the few black residents of Adams County. I could not find much information about Bryan's early life other than that he was born in 1804 in Maryland, moved to Gettysburg in 1840, and purchased a property south of town, just east of the Emmitsburg Road, in 1857. He lived there with his wife and five children and grew crops such as wheat and barley. There was also a peach orchard on his property. The family fled when news of the Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania reached Gettysburg. It's unclear when or where they went, but many free black citizens fled to Lancaster County until the threat had subsided. 
Brian, like many residents of Adams County, sought restitution for damages to his property in the sum of $575, but only received $15 as reimbursement for the hay used to feed Union Army horses. After making repairs, he continued farming until 1868, when he sold his property and moved into town, where he worked at a hotel until his death in 1879. Hayes used the Bryan's house as his headquarters on July 3rd. The 12th New Jersey and 1st Delaware were posted south of the farm buildings behind a stone fence, with the 14th Connecticut a few yards behind them. The 108th New York was positioned behind an artillery battery north of the Bryan farm. The 10th New York Infantry remained several hundred yards in the rear on provost guard duty. Hayes' last unit was the New York Brigade, that had been led previously by Colonel George Willard. If you'll recall, this brigade was made up of regiments that had surrendered at Harper's Ferry the year before and sought to prove themselves in battle on July 2nd. They performed well and helped stop the attack of Barksdale's Mississippi Brigade, but Willard was killed during the action. Assuming command of the brigade was Colonel Eliakim Sherrill, Sherrill was a 50-year-old New Yorker, former tanner, state senator, and congressman. He also had one of the unluckiest experiences of the Civil War. He helped raise the 126th New York in August 1862. Less than a month later, they were part of the mass surrender at Harper's Ferry. If the humiliation of the surrender wasn't enough, Sherrill was wounded in the jaw by a musket ball. To make matters even worse, the wound never properly healed. Sherrill took multiple medical leaves, but returned to the 126th in January. Not long after Willard's death, he reluctantly ordered the brigade to retreat without orders. General Hancock, who had ordered the brigade to charge earlier, was furious and went so far as to arrest Sherrill. He overreacted to what was probably the smart move at the time. Willard's brigade had advanced so far that it had become isolated, but it didn't matter. Hancock was prone to losing his temper in the heat of battle, and after unleashing a storm of profanity, he placed Sherrill under arrest. It was only because of the intervention of General Hayes that he was released. His four regiments were scattered around the northern part of Cemetery Ridge. The bulk of the 126th New York was north of the Bryan Farm, to the right of the 108th New York. One company of skirmishers, led by Captain Samuel C. Armstrong, were sent to support the 8th Ohio on the Emmitsburg Road. 39th New York was a few yards behind the bulk of Smith's Brigade, just south of Bryan's Peach Orchard. The 111th was all the way back at Ziegler's Grove. The location of the 125th New York before the Confederate bombardment is unknown. Hancock's 2nd Division, commanded by General John Gibbon, also bore the brunt of the rebel assault on the 3rd. The right of his line began just south of the angle in the stone fence near the Copse of Trees. I've already talked about the Copse, but the angle is another one of those terms that in and of itself is unremarkable, but because it's in Gettysburg, it's somehow no longer an angle, but the angle. The low stone fence runs north to south along Cemetery Ridge, but at a certain point it changes direction, at about a 90 degree angle to the west, runs about 250 feet, and then at another 90 degree angle turns south again. The position of Hayes' division was north of the angle, and Gibbon's division was south of it. Therefore, Gibbon's three brigades were slightly further to the west than Hayes' men. In many accounts and post-war histories, this feature is referred to as a stone wall, but that term exaggerates its significance. Though well-constructed, it was only two or three feet tall, and was merely meant to be a property boundary. Contrary to Confederate recollections, it did not make for a formidable barrier, though it would offer some protection if the soldiers behind it were prone or crouched low. Gibbon's division was in a double line, with the front positioned along the stone fence, or makeshift breastworks, and the second line a few yards in the rear. Brigadier General Alexander S. Webb's Philadelphia Brigade was on the right of Gibbon's line. Only one regiment was posted along the wall, which was the 69th Pennsylvania. 
They were just south of the angle, in front of the copse of trees. His other three were spread out in the second line behind the copse. Next in line was Colonel Norman J. Hall's brigade. The position they were ordered to hold did not have the protection of the stone wall, so the soldiers, without orders, took the initiative and built defensive works. With only one shovel, they dug a one-foot trench, which one officer described as, quote, a large cart rut, unquote, about 200 yards long. The excavated soil, along with torn down fence rails and fallen limbs, were piled in front of the trench. It wasn't much, but it was better than nothing. Three of Hall's regiments manned the breastwork, while the other two were held in reserve. The last of Gibbon's brigades was Brigadier General William Harrow's. Harrow was a 40-year-old Kentucky native. He became a lawyer after moving to Illinois, where he was well acquainted with a fellow attorney on the circuit, Abraham Lincoln. A few years later, he relocated to Indiana, where he married the daughter of a wealthy private bank owner and ran a successful law practice. He began the war as a major in the 14th Indiana and fought in some of the earliest campaigns of the war in western Virginia. He rose to regimental command around the time of Jackson's Valley Campaign and received a promotion to colonel. Following the Maryland Campaign, he led a brigade and then received another promotion to brigadier general in the spring of 1863. All four of his regiments were dug in behind the makeshift breastwork along the front line. Gibbon's division received additional support from two First Corps brigades of Doubleday's division. Two regiments of Brigadier General Thomas A. Rowley's brigade had been detached the previous evening and sent to aid the 2nd Corps in the defense of Cemetery Ridge. They were the 82nd New York Infantry, a.k.a. the 20th New York Militia, and the Ulster Guard, commanded by Colonel Theodore B. Gates. Theodore Gates was a 37-year-old New Yorker who had commanded the Ulster Guard since the 2nd Battle of Bull Run in late August of the previous year. In addition to the 82nd, there was also the 151st Pennsylvania, also known as the School Teachers Regiment, led by Captain Walter L. Owens. The 151st Pennsylvania was a relatively new regiment, having been organized last October. Its commander, Colonel Harrison Allen, had taken sick leave back in June, so the regiment was led by Lieutenant Colonel George McFarland. The regiment received its nickname because somewhere between 50 and 100 of the soldiers were Pennsylvania school teachers. Their first battle was at Chancellorsville, but it was July 1st where they truly received their baptism by fire, when they participated in the defense of Seminary Ridge. 72% of the regiment was killed, wounded, or captured in their rear guard action. McFarlane was among the casualties, having received a bullet wound in both legs, one of which was amputated. Because of the surgery, he was left behind and fell into the hands of Confederate forces. Captain Owens would command what was left of the teachers on July 3rd. The two regiments were basically on their own because they'd been detached from Raleigh's brigade and had no orders from Abner Doubleday. Gates, who was placed in temporary command of both regiments, reached out to Doubleday, but the division commander told him to stay put. No one in the 2nd Corps seemed to have any interest in them either. They ended up taking a position on the left end of the 2nd line of Gibbon's division. The last unit to participate in the defense of Cemetery Ridge was also from Doubleday's division. It was the 2nd Vermont Brigade, led by Brigadier General George Stannard. I've talked about them a little bit in previous episodes. The brigade was recruited in 1862 on a nine-month enlistment. They were supposed to be discharged back in May, but the crisis of the Battle of Chancellorsville and Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania extended their stay in the Army of the Potomac. They arrived too late to see action on the first day, but did participate in the repulse of Anderson's attack on the second. It originally had five regiments, but two of them were detached and were guarding wagon trains further south. Though they would move around a bit before the artillery bombardment, the Vermonters would all end up to the left of Gibbon's division. The 16th Vermont had several companies on the skirmish line just east of the Emmitsburg Road and a reserve a few yards back. The main body of the 16th and 14th Vermont regiments were southwest of the left of Gibbon's division. 
The 13th Vermont was just due south of Hall's Brigade. The total number of Union infantrymen defending the target of the rebel attack only amounted to roughly 5,750, just under half the number of soldiers that made up Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble's divisions. If all three could reach the line intact, they might have a chance at driving off this smaller force. But what would happen next? The general feeling among the Federals is hard to pin down. Some correctly predicted that an attack was incoming. It was hard to ignore the heavy buildup of artillery less than a mile to the west of their position. Others were more concerned with more immediate material matters. For those on the skirmish line, the morning and early afternoon was pretty stressful. Chaplain Henry Stevens of the 14th Connecticut wrote, quote, When the reliefs went to their places, there was excitement. The relieving squad would leave the reserve rendezvous, moving in any way possible to avoid the observation of the enemy. But when a place was reached where exposure was unavoidable, each would take to running at highest speed, and upon reaching the fence would throw himself at once upon the ground. Then must the relieved ones get back to the reserve in a similar manner, and relieving seemed a misnomer, unquote. But the soldiers generally remembered things that are pretty commonplace if you read through Civil War diaries or memoirs. They mostly recalled things like the weather and how hungry they were. John M. Dunn, a color sergeant in the 1st Delaware Infantry, remembered how, quote, the sun was dreadfully hot, scarcely a breath of air blowing, unquote. Those not in the shade of tree groves or orchards were forced to improvise. Many took their canvas tents and propped them up with their muskets or fence rails to escape the sun's rays. Several units, particularly those who had been on the skirmish line, had not received a meal in 24 hours. Sergeant Silas Adams of the 19th Maine recalled, quote, Our stomachs were getting to be a little shaky, unquote. Captain John Cook of the 80th New York was forced to share a lone piece of hardtack with a corporal. You might be familiar with hardtack, but if not, it's essentially a square biscuit or cracker made with flour, water, and salt. It was an essential part of the Civil War soldier's ration because it could be preserved for long periods of time and it was easy to ship and store. As the name suggests, it was rather hard. Consuming hardtack without softening at first could easily cause teeth to break. It was also not particularly tasty, so soldiers would typically soak it in coffee or add it to a stew for flavor and extra calories. Coffee and water were also hot commodities. Sergeant James Wright of the 1st Minnesota wrote, quote, No man can fully and rightly appreciate the value of a cup of coffee until he has partaken of one under some similar circumstances. After an examination of our rifles and ammunition, we laid down behind the little shelters we had made and went to sleep. Unquote. The real great advantage the Federals had was in their superior artillery. Union guns and ammunition were of better quality, and they were in a strong position on July 3rd. Their advantage would only increase as the Confederate infantrymen got closer. Of Meade's 200 guns, roughly 120 would participate in defending Pickett's charge. In the center of the line, intermingled with the defending infantrymen of the 1st and 2nd Corps, were the five batteries of Captain John G. Hazard's 2nd Corps Artillery Brigade. On the right of the line was Lieutenant George Woodruff's Battery I, 1st U.S. Artillery. Woodruff was 23 years old and a native of Michigan. He'd attended West Point, and despite accruing 69 demerits in one year, he graduated 16th of 35 in the June 1861 class. The battery, which consisted of six Napoleons, was placed on a knoll east of the Emmitsburg Road, north of the Bryan Farm and south of the Trossel Farm. Their position was fairly isolated, so Hayes sent the 108th New York to support them. Woodruff's battery had taken quite a few casualties the previous day, and something like a third of the gunners in the battery were reassigned infantrymen from Sherrill's brigade. For much of the morning, they took shelter in Ziegler's Grove to avoid the constant sniping from Confederate sharpshooters. 
200 yards to the south of Woodruff's battery was Battery A, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery, led by Captain William Arnold, a pre-war bookkeeper from Providence. Arnold's six 3-inch ordnance rifles were placed just north of where the angle in the stone fence redirects to the north. The next battery was Lieutenant Alonzo Cushing's Battery A, 4th U.S. Artillery. Cushing was 22 years old and had grew up in Fredonia, New York. Like George Woodruff, he was also a graduate of the West Point class of June 1861. His three older brothers also served in various Union forces. The oldest, Milton, was a Navy paymaster, William was a Navy lieutenant, and Howard was fellow artilleryman. Cushing's six three-inch rifled guns were placed about 80 feet east of where the angle turns to the south, between the 71st and 72nd Pennsylvania Infantry Regiments. Cushing's battery was essentially the center of the Union artillery on Cemetery Ridge. Just south of the copse of trees was Lieutenant Thomas Brown's Battery B, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery. Brown's battery entered the battle with six Napoleons, but during the July 2nd attack, Wright's Georgia Brigade overran his position, and three of his guns were abandoned on the field, and though they were later recovered, only one was still serviceable. During the fighting, the battery suffered more than 20 casualties, which included Lieutenant Brown, who was wounded. On July 3rd, Lieutenant William Perrin would command their four available Napoleons. Last on the artillery line was Battery B, 1st New York Light Artillery, commanded by Captain James McKay Rorty. Rorty was a 26-year-old Irish immigrant. He survived the famine of the late 1840s and made his way to the U.S. in 1857. He settled in New York where he was involved with the Irish nationalist movement. At the outbreak of the war, he enlisted in the 69th New York Militia and fought in the First Battle of Bull Run where he was captured. After spending two months in a Confederate prison in Richmond, he and a couple of fellow POWs managed to escape and made their way to Union lines. Rorty re-enlisted as a second lieutenant and was made an ordnance officer in General Thomas Francis Marr's Irish Brigade. He was given a saber, belt, and sash as a gift by former members of the O'Mahony Guard, an antebellum Irish militia unit that he had been a member of. Thanking his Fenian comrades, he wrote in a letter, quote, My political faith as an Irishman has only one article a firm belief in the future resurrection of Ireland, and whether death meets me, as I hope it will, on an Irish battlefield, or whether it overtakes me battling for freedom on the hot plains of the South, it will ever find me as firm in that faith as it finds the dying Christian in the faith of his own resurrection." Unquote. At Gettysburg, Rorty was a captain, an ordnance officer in the 2nd Corps, but wishing to see more action, asked General Hancock for a combat command. Hancock put him in charge of Battery B, possibly because it had once been part of the Irish Brigade. The battery's four 10-pound Parrot rifles were placed 150 yards south of Brown's battery, behind the infantry of Hull's and Harrow's brigades. The majority of the Yankee guns were posted on the flanks of the defending force, concentrated along the southern end of Cemetery Ridge, Little Round Top, and Cemetery Hill. Colonel Freeman McGilvery's 1st Volunteer Brigade of the Artillery Reserve dominated the southern portion of the battlefield. McGilvery, a 39-year-old Mainer and former sailing master, had been instrumental in the defense against Longstreet's attack on July 2nd. To the north were the 1st and 11th Corps Artillery Brigades, commanded by Colonel Charles Wainwright and Major Thomas Osborne, respectively. Wainwright I've talked about before, but Osborne was 30, grew up in New Jersey, and then later a farm in upstate New York. After graduating from what is now Colgate College, he worked in a law office in Watertown, before eventually passing the bar in 1861. His law career had just started when he enlisted in the Union Army as an artillery lieutenant. On July 3rd, Osborne was especially worried about his guns, which were posted west of the Baltimore Pike on Cemetery Hill. Though they had a commanding view of the fields around them, they were also quite exposed to rebel artillery fire from the north and west. 
Under different circumstances, he would have ordered his men to build earthworks, but because of their position, they would have been, quote, digging up the dead in the cemetery, unquote. He would go on to say, quote, we made the best target for artillery practice the enemy had during the war, unquote. Similar to how Meade spent the morning inspecting the lines of the entire army, General Henry Hunt did the same thing with his artillery. Several batteries had taken a real beating the day before, so some were reinforced with guns from the artillery reserve. As I mentioned before, all was not still in Cemetery Ridge that morning. Confederate guns, likely the 3rd Corps, bombarded Union troops of General Alexander Webb's Philadelphia Brigade around 8 a.m. While General Hunt was checking in on Cushing's battery, a shell came crashing down into an open limber, which caused the munitions held inside to explode. This set off a chain reaction in which two more limbers blew up, and sent several horses galloping in fright. More shells and solid shot rained down on the Union infantry, gunners, and Meade's headquarters. While things were hot, Meade ordered all of his staff officers and orderlies to move to a safer position to the east. Rebel gunners would intermittently bombard the Second Corps throughout the morning, including their pre-attack cannonade on the Bliss Farm. But by about 11 a.m., things were beginning to quiet down again. A black servant named John, who worked for General Gibbon, prepared a meal around this time, which consisted of stewed chicken, or as Gibbon remembered, quote, an old and tough rooster, unquote, with potatoes and a side of bread and butter. Gibbon, who had tried to get some sleep earlier, was awoken by the skirmishing and artillery that morning. He was joined by several other high-ranking officers, including Hancock, 1st Corps Commander General John Newton, and Cavalry Corps Commander General Alfred Pleasanton. General Meade had returned to the Leicester House, and Gibbon invited the Army commander to their late-morning brunch. He initially declined, citing his many duties, but Gibbon managed to convince him by saying he needed to, quote, keep up his physical strength, unquote. Meade and Hancock, the highest ranking of the five generals, sat on stools. In a letter to his brother, Lieutenant Frank Haskell wrote, quote, The rest of us sat upon the ground, cross-legged like the picture of a smoking Turk, and held our plates upon our laps, unquote. Haskell was a fantastic writer. His language was romantic, highly descriptive, and like most 19th century writers, tinged with racism. After they ate, the officers lolled around, drank coffee or tea, smoked cigars, and reminisced about the events of the past day and the possibilities for the current one. By this time, it was around noon. Friday would turn out to be the hottest day of the battle. The rains, which had cooled things a bit earlier in the week, had subsided for the time being. Dr. Michael Jacobs, a professor of mathematics and natural sciences at Pennsylvania College, was an amateur meteorologist and diligent recorder of the weather. Each day, he took notes of meteorological conditions, and three separate times he would record the temperature. At 7 a.m., it was 73 degrees, and by midday, it was certainly above 80. He wrote that the temperature at 2 p.m. around the time the assault took place was 87 degrees, which would turn out to be the hottest day in Gettysburg for the entire month of July. It's also important to note that Jacobs was in the shade so he could get an accurate temperature reading. It was undoubtedly hotter in the open with no cloud or tree cover. He also wrote that it had been cloudy in the morning but began to clear up in the afternoon. He made no mention of the humidity, but it too likely would have been high, adding to the discomfort of the soldiers. John Newton poked fun at Gibbon, who was the most junior general present at the midday luncheon. Haskell recalled, quote, General Newton humorously spoke of General Gibbon as this young North Carolinian, and how he was becoming arrogant and above his position because he had commanded a corps, unquote. Gibbon had been given temporary command of the 2nd Corps because Hancock was acting as commander of the shattered 3rd in place of the wounded Dan Sickles. Haskell continued, quote, General Gibbon reported by saying that General Newton had not been long enough in such a command, only since yesterday, to enable him to judge of such things. General Meade still thought that the enemy would attack his left again today towards the evening, but he was ready for them. 
General Hancock thought the attack would be upon the position of the 2nd Corps. It was mentioned that General Hancock would assume command of the 2nd Corps from that time, so that General Gibbon would again return to the 2nd Division, unquote. Meade's next order was to return the Provost Guard of each division back to the front line. Provost Guard performed a few duties, but primarily they were posted in the rear of the army to prevent stragglers or deserters from escaping. Meade figured that if they were to be attacked, they would need every man they could get, and the Provost Guard would be of more use with their respective units. After he was done with his meal, he rode off to briefly visit with General Sedgwick, and then afterward headed for Little Round Top with General Warren. There, he and his chief engineer surveyed the scene. From the rocky hill, he could for the first time that day truly see the massive concentration of rebel artillery, which stretched from the peach orchard all the way to the southern edge of town. In his mind, this confirmed what he'd been predicting since the night before. Meade and Warren spurred their horses into a gallop and raced back toward the Leicester House. Sometime between 11 a.m. and noon, Porter Alexander visited Longstreet to inform him that his batteries were in position and ready to commence firing whenever the general was ready. Longstreet informed him that the infantry had not completed their dispositions, but when they were set, he would send a courier to 1st Corps Artillery Reserve Commander Colonel James Walton to initiate the beginning of the bombardment. The signal would be two shots fired in quick successions by guns from the Washington Artillery Battalion. Longstreet then assigned Alexander the duty of informing Pickett when the most opportune time to advance would be. He also advised him to pick a place to observe the barrage. Alexander returned to the artillery line, specifically Wolfert's battery, near the northeast corner of Spangler's Woods and directly in front of Garnett's brigade. He pondered over how long the cannonade should last, about 20 or 30 minutes, he figured. Quote, Not shorter than 20, for the longer the time, the more punishment the enemy would have, but not longer than 30 because they had a long charge, and I must allow plenty of time for them to cover the distance within the hour for I did not like to use up more ammunition than that would consume before having the crisis of the matter determined, unquote. Alexander, a former ordnance officer, was keenly aware of the amount of ammunition they possessed, and that factored heavily into his calculations for how long the bombardment should last. Based on the action of July 2nd, he estimated that each gun in the First Corps had about 200 rounds available, including canister, which couldn't be used in the long-range cannonade. He also took into account that they would need to save some ammunition in case the attack failed and were themselves attacked. They did have reserve trains, but they would not have much ordnance available, and Pendleton had, without informing anyone, moved the supply wagons further to the west. Besides the issue of ammunition, he initially did not put too much thought into how long the bombardment should last, and expressed his doubt about knowing when the precise moment to order the charge would be. He wrote, quote, I had no expectation whatever in seeing anything special happen in the enemy during the cannonade, either to make me lengthen or shorten this period. In fact, I had thought very seriously on the subject and figured up that the enemy had as good and as many guns as we, and great advantage in position and ammunition over us, I might not have felt as cheerful and sanguine as I did. But the fact is that, like all the rest of the army, I believe that it would all come out right, because General Lee had planned it." Unquote. Around noon or a little after, he received a message sent by courier by General Longstreet. Alexander claimed that the note read, quote, Colonel, if the artillery fire does not have the effect to drive off the enemy or greatly demoralize him so as to make our efforts pretty certain, I would prefer that you should not advise General Pickett to make the charge. I shall rely a great deal on your good judgment to determine the manner and shall expect you to let General Pickett know when the moment offers, unquote. He was shocked by this, quote, that presented the whole business to me in a new light. It was no longer General Lee's inspiration that that was the way to whip the battle, but my cold judgment to be founded on what I was going to see, unquote. 
At the time, he was with a fellow Georgian, General Rands Wright, so he sought out his feelings on the matter. Wright advised him to reply with a note asking for clarification. This is what Alexander recalled writing, quote, General, I will only be able to judge of the effect of our fire on the enemy by his return fire, for his infantry is but little exposed to view, and the smoke will obscure the whole field. If, as I infer from your note, there is any alternative to this attack, it should be carefully considered before opening our fire, for it will take all of the artillery ammunition we have left to test this one thoroughly. And if the result is unfavorable, we will have none left for another effort. And even if this is entirely successful, it can only be so at a very bloody cost." Unquote. He sent the message off with a courier, who returned shortly with a reply from Longstreet that read, quote, Colonel, the intention is to advance the infantry, if the artillery has the desired effect of driving the enemies off, or having other effects such as to warrant us in making the attack. When the moment arrives, advise General Pickett, and of course, advance such artillery as you can use in aiding the attack, unquote. Hoping to get a second opinion, he passed the note to Rand's Wright. He recalled their exchange, quote, General Wright read this and said, He has put the responsibility back upon you. I said, General, tell me exactly what you think of this attack. He said, Well, Alexander, it is mostly a question of supports. It is not as hard to get there as it looks. I was there yesterday with my brigade. The real difficulty is to stay there after you get there, for the whole infernal Yankee army is up there in a bunch. Unquote. Porter Alexander, for the first time on July 3rd, now felt unsure of himself. Longstreet had not only injected doubt into him about the prospects for victory, but had also led him to question what his role that day truly was. Was he supposed to simply command the artillery and then advise Pickett when to begin his assault, or was the decision to even make the assault being placed upon him by Longstreet? He began to think it through and carefully considered how he could tell if and when the desired effect had occurred. According to him, quote, but before deciding absolutely, I rode back for a little interview with Pickett himself. I did not tell him my object, but just felt his pulse, as it were, about the assault. He was in excellent spirits and sanguine of success. Then I determined to let General Longstreet know that I intended to put Pickett in. I wrote him just these words, General, when our artillery fire is at its best, I shall order General Pickett to charge. And then feeling more responsibility, I began to revise my calculations about when to give Pickett the order to start. To be too soon seemed to be safer than to be too late. So I fixed my own mind on 20 minutes, with the possibility of even shortening it to 15 if things looked favorably at the time. Unquote. This exchange between Longstreet and Alexander has been a focal point of debate between historians ever since. What was Longstreet exactly trying to convey to the young artillerist? Was he trying to shirk responsibility for ordering the assault? Or was he trying to find someone else to call off the whole thing? Either way, he'd avoid the blame. Both of these ideas have been suggested by detractors of Longstreet, but if he was looking for an out, Alexander gave him one, and he didn't take it. If he was trying to put the blame on him for ordering the attack to go forward, he did so poorly. I think ultimately Longstreet was just trying to make him understand the gravity of the situation and the importance of his artillery. It was also not unusual for the Corps commander to give large amounts of responsibility to subordinates, much in the same way that R.E. Lee did. And despite the deep reservations that he had for the assault, he believed that it was going to happen, one way or the other. In his own post-war memoirs, Longstreet stated, quote, Colonel Alexander was informed that there was no alternative, that I could find no way out of it, that General Lee had considered and would listen to nothing else, that orders had gone for the guns to give the signal for the batteries, that he should call the troops at the first opportunity or lull in the enemy's fire, unquote. Longstreet would not delay the bombardment any longer. 
During the exchange with Alexander, he sent a courier with the order to begin the thing, to Colonel Walton down near the Sherfy Peach Orchard. While waiting for the guns to open, he, quote, rode to a woodland hard by to lie down and study for some new thought that might aid the assaulting column, unquote. The courier arrived just before 1 p.m. with a message that read, quote, Colonel, let the batteries open. Order great precision and care in firing. If the batteries at the Peach Orchard cannot be used against the point we intend attacking, let them open on the enemy on the Rocky Hill, unquote. The order filtered down from Colonel Walton to Major Benjamin Eshelman, commander of the Washington Artillery Battalion. The battalion was founded in New Orleans in 1838 and still exists today as the 141st Field Artillery Regiment of the Louisiana National Guard. Eshelman then ordered Captain Merritt B. Miller, commander of the 3rd Artillery Company, to fire two of his guns. The exact time the cannons went off was disputed by those present. Lieutenant Frank Haskell remembered looking at his pocket watch at 12.55, just before the first shots rang out. Porter Alexander remembered it being precisely 1 o'clock. Perhaps the most trustworthy source was Pennsylvania College professor Dr. Michael Jacobs, who wrote, quote, At 7 minutes past 1 p.m., the awful and portentous silence was broken, unquote. Various Union soldiers recalled the effects of these two shots quite differently. A group of officers in the 19th Massachusetts Hall's Brigade were sitting around and eating lunch. An unnamed soldier of the 19th recalled the incident, quote, Lieutenant Sherman Robinson of Company A was among the group of officers and had leaped to his feet at the sound of the first gun. He was in the act of wiping his mouth with his handkerchief when the second shot struck him in the left side, just below the shoulder, passing through his body and bearing him to the ground, literally torn to pieces, unquote. Robinson, who was 20 years old, was killed instantly. But as the historian Carol Reardon put it, quote, from the moment the Washington artillery fired the first signal shot to open the cannonade, the historical record clouds considerably. Indeed, accounts of the fate of that first shot, as eyewitnesses record it, provide a foretaste of the fog of war that invests all that follows. Depending on whom one chooses to believe, that projectile nearly cut in two Lieutenant S.S. Robinson of the 19th Massachusetts, or it sailed harmlessly over an officer of that same regiment who lay wounded in a hospital way behind the front lines, or it exploded behind the Vermont Brigade. Or it was a dud that hit near the lines of the 12th New Jersey. Or it exploded on a rock in the 12th New Jersey's line, scattering gravel all over nearby soldiers, unquote. Even in an event witnessed by thousands of men, few could agree on a singular point during the battle. I'll try my best to connect the various accounts into a cohesive narrative. Soon after, the entire Confederate artillery line erupted. Within seconds, hundreds of rounds came flying into Union lines. John Gibbon remembered that, quote, the whole air above and around us was filled with bursting and screaming projectiles. All jumped to their feet and loud calls were made for horses, which orderlies hurried forward with, already saddled and waiting. Mine did not come at once, and anxious to get upon the line, I started on a run, up a little swale leading directly up to the center of it." Unquote. The cannonade was likely the most awesome sight that the Yankee soldiers had ever or would ever witness. Though many of the officers had been aware of the buildup of rebel guns on the opposite ridge, the majority of soldiers were more concerned about other things like when their next meal was coming or how to get out of the blistering sun. For others, it wasn't the artillery barrage that shocked them, but as Sergeant James A. Wright of the 1st Minnesota would describe, quote, We were not particularly surprised when the firing began, for we were expecting almost anything, but we were surprised by its volume, extent, and duration. We were not unfamiliar with artillery fire, but this proved to be something far beyond all previous experience or conception, and the scene was terrific beyond description. It began fiercely, increased rapidly, and continued persistently." Unquote. For the first few minutes, the Federal soldiers watched on with awe. 
but that soon changed when hundreds of projectiles came screaming from the west. The men on the front line were ordered to take down their improvised tent shelters and all flags to be furled. They took cover wherever they could, behind the stone fence or breastworks, boulders, small undulations in the ground, wherever they could hide to give them some protection. A soldier of the 69th Pennsylvania wrote that, quote, The slight fence in front afforded little protection, for being composed of small stones loosely thrown together, they were hurled with violence in all directions when struck by the powerful missiles of the guns, unquote. Private Albert S. Immel of the 12th New Jersey also noted the lack of protection that the stone fence provided them, quote, Solid shot would have gone through it as easily as if it were rotten cheese, unquote. But Emil and others noted that it did have a positive effect on the psyches of the soldiers on the front. One thing to note was that for as psychologically impactful as the bombardment was, particularly in the opening minutes, it became apparent that the Confederates were overshooting most of their targets. Colonel Charles Wainwright recorded in his diary a few of his observations, quote, I have never known them to be so lavish of ammunition. Lee must have given special orders and have placed much reliance on this fire, but it was by no means as effective as it should have been, nine-tenths of their shot passing over our men." Unquote. The flaws in the Confederate cannonade were becoming quickly apparent. It was just as Alexander had predicted. In theory, massing some 163 guns and firing them in rapid succession all at roughly the same area would do quite a bit of damage, but shortly after the barrage began, it became nearly impossible to see across the valley. Smoke from all of the guns quickly shrouded the field, hindering the field of vision for both sides. It also burned the noses, lungs, and eyes of everyone within a close proximity of the artillery. Instead of landing on the front line, the majority of shell and shot fell behind the Union infantry, sometimes as far as several hundred yards on the reverse slope of Cemetery Ridge. Ironically, it made life hell for those in the rear, but as Sergeant Alfred P. Carpenter of the 1st Minnesota remembered, quote, to rise up was almost certain death. While flat upon the ground, we were tolerable, well protected." Unquote. Trees, however, provided almost no protection. Private Chauncey Harris of the 108th New York recorded, quote, "...small trees were cut down and large ones shattered almost to pieces. Five different cannonballs struck a large oak, three feet in diameter, which stood not five feet from where I lay, and one of them passed entirely through it. A shell struck right at my feet, killing Sergeant Maurice Welch and Private John Fitzner." Unquote. The overshooting was due in part to the lack of visibility, but it's also been alleged that the fuses on Confederate manufactured shells made the issue worse. In general, their ordnance was of poorer quality than their northern counterparts, but the gunners were able to compensate for reliability issues. Back in episode 1 of the series, I briefly mentioned that in March, the Confederate Ordnance Lab at Browns Island in Richmond was destroyed by an accidental explosion. In order to ensure that the Army would have enough munitions, they shipped ordnance from Charleston, South Carolina, and Selma, Alabama. Though the shells were of fine quality, after testing the fuses, it was determined that they burned longer than those made in Richmond. So a 4-inch fuse made in South Carolina would burn at the same rate as a 5-inch fuse from Richmond. That second could be the difference between exploding over the intended target or flying hundreds of yards further and bursting harmlessly over nothing. Rebel artillery officers might have been able to correct the issue, but the lack of field of vision comes back into play. They simply could not see that their shells were not doing the damage they intended. That all being said, even if only one-tenth of the Confederate artillery landed where they were supposed to, it still would have been awful for those on the receiving end. Major Thomas Osborne estimated that both sides fired some two to four rounds per gun per minute. Not all Confederate guns fired at the same rate, particularly those of the 2nd Corps, something that E.P. Alexander complained about after the battle. 
But even if only 100 guns were firing at a rapid rate, that would still mean that some 300 to 400 rounds per minute were being fired. At a 10% hit rate, that's still about 30 to 40 well-aimed shots. As mentioned earlier, General Henry Hunt instructed his gunners to remain silent for the first 15 minutes or so. Some of his batteries did this, but the guns at the center of the Union line began returning fire pretty quickly, probably within 5 to 10 minutes. This was largely due to meddling from General Hancock, who believed that it would have a positive psychological effect on the infantry to hear their own artillery shooting back. Despite the dangers of doing so, he continued to ride his horse a few yards behind the stone fence. When a staff officer urged him to get down, as he was too important to lose, Hancock replied, quote, There are times when a corps commander's life does not count. Unquote. General Meade's headquarters at the Leicester House became an unintended hotspot for rebel shells. Because of so many overshots, the Leicester House, which was about 400 yards in the rear of the front line, received hundreds of stray cannonballs. It was particularly bad for the horses of Meade's staff. Samuel Wilkinson, a war correspondent with the New York Times, wrote about the cannon fire, quote, They burst in the yard, burst next to the fence on both sides, garnished as usual with the hitched horses of aides and orderlies. Fastened animals reared and plunged in terror, then one fell, then another. Sixteen lay dead and mangled before the fire ceased, still fastened by their halters." Unquote. Meade himself was nearly struck, and General Dan Butterfield, his chief of staff, was lightly wounded by a shell fragment. Meade told his staff a story of his Mexican War experience in an attempt to calm their nerves. Quote, "'Gentlemen, are you trying to find a safe place? You remind me of a man who drove the ox team which took ammunition for the heavy guns onto the field at Palo Alto. Finding himself within range, he tilted up his cart and got behind it. Just then, General Taylor came along, and seeing this attempt at shelter, shouted, You damn fool! Don't you know that you are no safer here than anywhere else? The driver replied, I don't suppose I am, General, but it kind of feels so. Unquote. The Union Army commander kept his cool, but was forced to abandon the house in search of a less dangerous place. They chose General Henry Slocum's headquarters at the Leitner House in Powers Hill, and left behind a signal officer with whom they could communicate orders to the front. For the gunners of both sides, it was hot work. They had no protection against the hail of shell and shot. The only thing that helped was that they could focus on their task at hand. Sergeant Major William B. Hinks, 14th Connecticut, was lying on the ground next to a fellow soldier named Eddie Hart. The 14th was in line next to Arnold's battery, and Hinks described the action. Quote, no one moved or spoke save the gunners behind us, and ever and anon I could hear the ringing voice of the sergeant nearest us giving command to aim, fire, a tremendous crash, load, to be after a brief interval repeated. Then after a time I judged that he was wounded, for his voice was silenced, and out of the cloud came another and different voice, repeating the same command." Unquote. Gunners and infantrymen often remembered the bombardment differently, particularly the sound. The roar of cannons was so loud and continuous that it blended into one deafening sound, but Major Thomas Osborne remembered, quote, I have often heard infantry officers speak of it, though I have but faint recollection of it myself, unquote. Private Miles Newberry of Cushing's battery mentioned, quote, It soon became so smoky that we could not see anything ahead, and we fired at random, unquote. The five Second Corps batteries received the brunt of the Confederate artillery fire. Captain Rorty's Battery B had two of its four guns disabled, and only three of the original 65 men in the battery were left alive and unwounded. Rorty was manning one of the guns when an enemy artillery round struck a limber, causing it to explode. The Irishman was wounded by a fragment and died shortly after. Lieutenant Albert Sheldon, the battery's original commander, stepped in to take his place. 
Private Alfred G. Gardner, a 41-year-old Massachusetts-born number two gunner in Brown's battery, had just inserted a shell into his artillery piece when a Confederate shell exploded right in front of it. The blast decapitated the number one gunner, and the left side of Gardner's torso was torn off. He told Sergeant Albert Strait to send his Bible home to his wife before crying out his last words. Quote, Glory to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Unquote. Brown's gunners tried to finish the job that had been interrupted by the Confederate shell, but the cannonball was stuck at the end of the muzzle. Apparently, the shell had dented the round opening, and despite great efforts to remove it, the ball was permanently lodged in the muzzle. The Gettysburg gun, as it came to be known, can be seen today in the Rhode Island State House in Providence. Cushing's battery, which was closest to the angle, received constant fire from rebel artillery, but he managed to keep his guns firing despite heavy casualties and repeated damage to the cannons. When the wheel of one of his guns was destroyed by a solid shot, the gun crew attempted to retreat, but Cushing refused to let them. He pulled his pistol out of its holster and threatened to shoot any man who ran away. Cushing was no coward. He was severely wounded in the right shoulder and his crotch, but would not leave. When Sergeant Frederick Fuger urged him to seek treatment in the rear, Cushing replied, quote, No, I stay right here and fight it out or die in the attempt. Unquote. Ammunition was running low for most of the frontline batteries. That combined with mounting casualties led General Hunt to order Arnold's and Brown's batteries to be withdrawn, though one of Arnold's guns was left along the stone fence. Rorty's and Cushing's batteries should have been ordered to fall back as well, but were left behind to fire what long-range ordnance they had left, and wait for the expected infantry attack so that they could use their canister rounds. After about 30 or 40 minutes of constant artillery fire, General Henry Hunt rode to Cemetery Hill and met with Major Osborne, Generals Oliver Howard, and Carl Schertz. Osborne's 11th Corps Artillery Brigade had been caught in a crossfire, as Alexander had correctly judged, but his batteries handled themselves well and managed to silence most of the guns of the Confederate 2nd Corps that were firing from Benner's Hill. Later, Alexander remarked, quote, Great criticism which I have to make on the artillery operations of the day is upon the inaction of the artillery of Ewell's Corps. Unquote. Osborne told Hunt he believed that they should stop firing in hopes that it would deceive the Confederates into thinking their artillery had run out of ammunition or been driven off. The three generals liked the idea, and Hunt went about ordering the various artillery units to cease their fire. General Hancock again meddled with the artillery, much to Hunt's chagrin. Hancock had already gotten into an argument with Colonel McGilvery, whose batteries remained silent during most of the cannonade. McGilvery thought it wasteful to use his ammunition up so quickly when it would be more effective against the Confederate infantry attack. McGilvery refused to take orders from General Hancock as he was not his direct superior. This would lead to a post-battle and then later post-war controversy, mostly between Hunt and Hancock that revolved around chain of command issues. Hancock seemed to get rather testy in battle. Though he was personally brave, there are numerous examples of him lashing out at subordinates on both July 2nd and 3rd. Though the guns on the flanks fell silent, Hancock would not allow the artillery in his sector of the line to stop firing. Captain Andrew Cowan's first battery, New York Light Artillery, arrived on the scene. They were directed by General Webb to occupy the ground near the Copse of Trees, where Brown's Rhode Island battery had vacated. Whether or not Hunt's ruse worked is a matter of debate. He certainly believed it did. But Colonel Alexander believed the Federals made a mistake in not expending more ammunition because they could afford to do so, whereas the Confederates were already running quite low. About 25 minutes into the bombardment, Alexander began to grow nervous about the situation. His guns had not had the effect that he'd hoped, but to keep firing might use up what little ammunition they had left. He remembered, quote, I rode as follows and sent it to Pickett at exactly 1.25 p.m. 
If you are coming at all, you must come at once, or I cannot give you proper support. But the enemy's fire has not slackened at all. At least 18 guns are still firing from the cemetery itself." Unquote. One thing to note, Alexander did not distinguish between the area around the copse of trees and the town cemetery on the hill. He continued, quote, I had hardly dispatched this note when I began to notice signs of some of the enemy's guns ceasing to fire. At first I thought it only crippled guns, but soon, with my large glass, I discovered entire batteries limbering up and leaving their position." Unquote. He's probably referring to the removal of Brown's and Arnold's batteries. Alexander considered it a positive sign that their bombardment had worked to some degree. The withdrawal of the batteries on Cemetery Ridge gave them an opportunity. He fully believed that the Federals had plenty of ammunition to spare and plenty of reserve batteries, so it was only a matter of time before their opening closed. Only the infantry could finish the job, and he needed to inform Pickett that now was the time. Quote, So I wrote another note to Pickett, and sent it at 1.35, ten minutes after the first note. For God's sake, come quick. The 18 guns are gone. Come quick, or I can't support you. Unquote. Pickett received the first message from the artillery commander, rode to see Longstreet, and showed him the note. He said nothing. Pickett then asked, quote, General, shall I advance? Unquote. Longstreet allegedly said nothing again. Instead, he turned away and nodded. Before leaving, Pickett said, quote, I will lead my division forward, General Longstreet. Unquote. He rode off on his horse to prepare his officers and men to advance, while Longstreet went to see Alexander, who basically had nothing but bad news for the general. During the first 10 to 15 minutes of the bombardment, the nine howitzers that he'd planned to advance forward to support the infantry attack were moved without his knowledge, and nowhere to be found. He later learned that they'd come under fire and General Pendleton ordered them to go elsewhere, not realizing their importance. The other issue was the ammunition. Around 1.40pm, the rebel artillery slackened, because the gunners either ran out or were afraid to run out of rounds. The news disheartened Longstreet, and according to Alexander, the general told him to, quote, Go and halt Pickett right where he is, and replenish your ammunition, unquote. Alexander replied, quote, General, we can't do that. We nearly emptied the trains last night. Even if we had it, it would take an hour or two, and meanwhile the enemy would recover from the pressure he is now under. Our only chance is to follow it up now, to strike while the iron is hot, unquote. According to the artillerist, this was Longstreet's response, quote, I don't want to make this attack. I believe it will fail. I do not see how it can succeed. I would not make it even now, but that General Lee has ordered and expects it." Unquote. Alexander added, quote, He made these statements with slight pauses in between, while he was looking at the enemy's position through his field glasses. I had the feeling that he was upon the verge of stopping the charge, and that, with even slight encouragement, he would do it. But that very feeling kept me from saying a word, either of assent or dissent. I would not willingly take any responsibility in so grave a matter, and I had almost a morbid fear of personally causing any loss of time, so I stood by and looked on, in silence, almost embarrassing." Unquote. James Longstreet himself claimed that deep down he wished he could have stopped the assault. He would say in his campaign report, quote, "...the order for this attack, which I could not favor under better auspices, would have been revoked had I felt that I had the privilege." Unquote. Reiterating what he told Alexander on July 3rd, he wrote in his post-war memoir that, quote, The order was imperative. The Confederate commander had fixed his heart upon the work, unquote.
And that's where I'm going to leave off for today, folks. On the next episode, I'll pick up exactly where we left off and cover the infantry assault known as Pickett's Charge. And as always, thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, history. History.